I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall, and this is Disorder. This is a podcast where we examine a pressing global issue like climate change, tax havens, or neopopulism. We discuss how these issues have come to be part and parcel of our era of global disorder. And we finish by proposing solutions to restore effective global governance that could ultimately help us find a semblance of order in this mad, mad world. This week, we're going to examine ungoverned spaces. These are parts of the globe that are either beyond government control, think of the more peripheral regions in Yemen or Afghanistan, or areas where the nominal sovereign simply neglects to enforce its governance over a specific territory. Think of parts of Mexico or the Brazilian Amazon. We'll talk about how these areas contribute to and actually emit global disorder. And in the second half of the podcast, we'll take a more detailed look at how specific types of ungoverned spaces can have a direct impact on locals hundreds or even thousands of miles away by looking at how ungoverned spaces in Mexico directly causes the unregulated spread of fentanyl and black tar heroin in communities in the United States. Well, Jason, I'm tempted to kick off this episode by saying I sometimes feel like I have an ungoverned space in my own home. I have two teenage boys and their bedrooms are definitely no-go areas. And I have the same dilemma. Do I go in and intervene and try and clamp down and tidy it up? Or do I just let the swamp develop and possibly turn into some kind of contagious virus emanating from their bedrooms? And then there's a question. It's like, do you actually have the right to have sovereignty there, Alex? Well, I think I do. But of course, they don't <laughs> think that. They say, And actually, we'll get to this in the podcast. They say, well, we have the local knowledge and we know where to find our socks. We know where our laundry is. And I'm like, yeah, but it's really beginning to smell and it's a little bit rancid in there. Actually, a teenage bedroom is a perfect microcosm of an ungoverned space. And I occasionally have to exert my dictatorial instincts. (laughs) Anyway, we digress. To get us started, Jason, you've worked in a lot of places where there has been a lot of local disorder and ungoverned spaces. Give us some examples. What do you mean by the term? Sure. Before jumping into the definition, I have the view that it is the ungoverned space which causes the subsidiary problem, whether it's the jihadis or the drug trafficking. And that kind of turns things on its head because most people say there are all these militias, there's this drug trafficking. They wrest control for the government and make the ungoverned space. And and I see it in the reverse. Absolutely. It's in your book, isn't it? That it's the power vacuum that then militants come in or drug traffickers come in. They exploit that vacuum, right? Correct. So let's back up and ask, what is governance? What is sovereignty? And I'm going to use the two terms fairly synonymously. If we go back to the famous Max Weber definition, sovereignty is the possession of a monopoly of violence over a specific territory. And this kind of Weberian sovereignty is, you know, fairly new. Until the last three or 400 years, the majority of the world was an ungoverned space. And for most of human history, even those areas that were governed were not done so by sovereign states. There were empires and kingdoms and whatever. So what we're looking at today when we say ungoverned space is actually 
formerly governed but newly ungoverned spaces. And what do we mean by that? We are looking at areas that used to be governed by sovereign states. Consider areas of Syria or Libya or Mexico where the taxes used to be collected, murderers could have been apprehended, and there no longer are. Yeah, it's where local authority has broken down or vanished. I think a key thing to get your head around is that these ungoverned spaces are not necessarily places where no one is enforcing rules. It's that the state is not the one enforcing those rules. And that's what's connected to the enduring disorder, is that we're not able to come up with the win-win solutions because these territories are not governed by states. Okay, I that's a really good definition. Yeah, and in understanding this whole phenomenon, it's really fantastic that we're able to hear from Harold Trikunas. He's been at the forefront of this topic for a while now. He actually literally wrote the book. Well, he co-authored the book. It's called <laughs> Ungoverned Spaces, Alternatives to State Authority in an Era of Softened Sovereignty. He's currently the deputy director at the Center for International Security and Cooperation within Stanford University. We began by asking Harold about my favorite topic. What do geopolitical thinkers mean when we speak of order and disorder? Order is fundamentally, I think it was a layer cake, essentially, where at the very local fundamental level, there's the rules that govern our interactions with other people, it might be your friends and family, maybe it's your town or city. Layered on top of that are increasing levels of order all the way up to the international order. What happens within the system, which is now more able to influence itself than ever because of globalization, is that in certain pockets of that system, those layers have disappeared. And what's left is maybe very small local scale orders that are particularly vulnerable, I think, to these disorders or disordering actors because they have the ability to deploy violence. They might have access to fi greater financial resources. Maybe they're better able to tap into the forces of globalization to move money, people, resources, are able to sort of, quote unquote, emit disorder in ways that were not possible in the past. So we might look at remote areas in South America or Southeast Asia that are governed in very traditional ways that maybe today might be also occupied by these disordering actors and can take advantage of the weak enforcement of rules in those areas by the states that purport to govern these territories. Let's run with this metaphor of the layer cake. There's always been this layer cake, but what's happening now is that the glaze from the maraschino cherry on top is dripping all the way down to the bottom and getting the plate wet with that red sticky juice because the mediating layers have been eviscerated by globalization, right? So that's the change here. In other words, most order was always at the local level. Some of it was national. A touch of it was international and very little was at this global legal structural order. What can be done to mitigate the power of those people traffickers in sub-Saharan Africa to affect the global legal order? Or is that just here to stay because globalization is the new normal? So globalization is basically the new normal. So those actions are here to stay. What can be affected, though, is the ability of local, national, regional orders to become better at dealing with them. But this is challenging. You know, the issue of patience, the issue of staying engaged, 
the issue of dedicating resources and where you dedicate resources to building up national or regional capacity to deal with some of these issues. It's tough. These disordering actors, as you call them, or armed non-state actors, as others might call them, they have a couple of advantages. First of all, they're local. They know the terrain. They know the people. They know the area much better than international forces or outside forces do, right? The second thing is they're there to stay. That's where they live. And oftentimes the outside forces don't. It's really tough to get that combination of attention span, really, resources, and local knowledge. So that that's the trick. How do you navigate that trifecta? Tell me, what's the advantage for these disorderers? I'll just preface this by saying we need to distinguish between deliberate disorder and absence of order, which exists when states are just not interested in governing a certain territory. So we might think about certain parts of the world where states will actively not govern or ungovern certain spaces because it's convenient to them. Take, for example, an area like rural Colombia, where you have opponents, maybe your own armed forces have restrictions on them, maybe you don't want to be accused of committing human rights abuses as a state, so you let other actors act, paramilitaries, you let militias act, you let other kinds of armed actors take care of these business for you because you can hold them at an arm's length, right? We're not responsible. They're not part of us. So strategically, you can manage your problem while claiming you're not responsible. For example, I actually think Mexico actually has a relatively high capacity to order things. It just chooses not to in many cases, strategically, to manage its relationship with the United States. I think that's completely fascinating. I haven't heard that. Why? Why would the Mexican state allow the Sinaloan cartel to just continue on its business if it really had the capacity? If we think back to the 60s and 70s, there was a very active drug trade between Mexico and the United States. Maybe not the same kinds of drugs as we see today, but it wasn't violent. And why? Because the governing party at the time, the PRI, regulated the cartels and basically cut a deal, which is, we won't impede your trafficking if you don't engage in violence. In fact, we'll regulate your lanes of access to the U.S. border. Stay out of each other's lanes and everything will be fine. What happened in Mexico was a transition to democracy, which is very welcome, the election of opposition parties to power, parties that had a much more confrontational attitude towards the cartels, and from that came a large increase in violence and the breakdown of the Mexican state's ability to regulate the drug cartel in Mexico. So in other words, this solved the violence problem in Mexico. It did not solve the drug trade problem in the United States. Of course, we have to keep in mind the U.S. is the largest market for drugs in the world, including illicit drugs. And so therefore, that force of gravity in terms of international trade is enormous. So the Mexican state was able to regulate violence by cartels at certain points in times in history, and at other points it was not. But ultimately, it's always having to deal with that force of gra economic gravity that is the U.S. market for drugs. Yeah, I think that that's a conventional explanation that I can get on board with, but it leaves some gaps in the rationale. If, if you read about the Jalisco boys, say, in Sam Quindonis's Dreamland, 
you realize that the Mexican state never really made an attempt to govern the area where black tar heroin is being made. But I don't get that because there's a suboptimal outcome of all these Americans dying in Ohio and West Virginia when they can't get their hands on OxyContin and and get addicted to black tar heroin. So wasn't there an opportunity for a win-win outcome whereby the Mexicans could effectively collaborate with the Americans to fight and control, for example, the production of black tar heroin? Couldn't the Mexican state have used its northern neighbor's largesse to extend governance to those areas, solve its ungoverned space problem? Well, I point out very cynically that suboptimal only for the United States if people in Ohio are dying from heroin consumption. I think the Mexican state doesn't necessarily have that as highly ranked as other aspects of what it's trying to do, which is stay in power. And I think it's strategically, at certain points in time, has decided not to govern certain areas. Maybe that's because people are being paid off. Maybe because there's parts of the state that actively are complicit in the drug trade. It's possible to think of order and disorder as being opposed to each other, but oftentimes they overlap each other. And in fact, the state can choose which areas are, quote unquote, ungoverned or disordered to its advantage, oftentimes its financial advantage, and which ones are not. I think that the issue with black tar heroin and with drug cartels is such an important example of the dangers of ungoverned spaces because once you create things like a culture of addiction and criminality and cartels, we don't know where it's going to end. Where does this all end for the Mexican state, for example? Absolutely. And I think it's also possible to follow failed strategies. And I think in the Mexican case, we've seen a number of failures in terms of their approach to law enforcement that have actually made things worse. So one of the things that people don't know is that the Mexican state has killed or captured the head of every major cartel in Mexico in the past 10 to 20 years, every single one. That would normally be thought of as a sign of effectiveness. Unfortunately, what's happened in Mexico is that the seven or eight large cartels that existed traditionally have fragmented into over 100, as they're called, cartelitos, mini cartels. And one of the outcomes of this fragmentation is more violence. Because what happens when a big cartel breaks down is a power vacuum gets created. And everybody among the small local cartels that remain rushes in to try to fill it in. So it's not just a question of lack of will, but it's also a question of what kinds of strategies are pursued. And sometimes you pick the wrong strategy. And I think that's what we're seeing today in Mexico as part of the problem. So there are many reasons why states might allow ungoverned spaces within their territory, or they might even be willing to have disorder exist in someone else's territory if it empowers their friends or they can stay in power. Given all of this, are there any low-hanging fruit of things that we could do to live in a more governed world? I am not sure that there are low-hanging fruit. However, there's some basic principles. I think One thing that we point to is the need for better intelligence. I think we need better targeting of where we engage in support for greater order. One of the essential problems that we see in efforts of nation building, of security assistance, is states running out of patience, right? International actors just don't have the time. They don't have the patience. Their uh, taxpayers get tired of providing the resources. So targeting 
is an essential problem. I think local knowledge is a major problem. And oftentimes, it's too much to expect that international actors will have that local knowledge. This is where finding willing local partners can be very helpful. And ultimately, I think we have to establish some priorities. I think which of these problems is the most important to deal with? Where are we going to focus that attention is something the international community really hasn't come to grips with. And oftentimes, major international actors just don't agree among themselves. Coming up next, how ungoverned spaces in Mexico and the US have created one of the worst drug crises ever. What I found really interesting about that interview, and it's something I hadn't really thought about when we were first framing this episode, is there's actually a difference between deliberate disorder and the absence of order. So in some countries, it's just that state authority has broken down, not because the state wanted it to be that way, but just there's a whole confluence of forces or rival groups or pressures or civil war. But what he was really talking about is examples where the government has actually decided not to try and enforce its authority over an area and indeed may even be colluding to allow rival forces to control certain parts of the state. And then that leads on to my second thought from this, which is the misaligned priorities when we're trying to work with countries and their governments on how to tackle this problem. And again, the US-Mexico example, I don't want this only to be about US and Mexico, but the US and Mexico example is such a good one where the US focuses on stopping the flow of drugs. The Mexican focus is, but you guys are consuming the drugs. You need to control the demand. And then how do the US and Mexico overcome sort of the legacy of their historical mistrust towards each other? And Sam Quinones in our next interview is going to talk a little bit more about that. But I thought those were really fascinating points from what Harold said. I think it's really important to put this in historical perspective. There's always been local authorities, a given community, usually sharing the same religion and language. They impose certain rules amongst their flock. There was an adultery. This is the penalty that we meet out. Someone killed someone, but he was known to be stealing. Well, we're not going to turn you over to the law. That stuff has always been going on. What's different and what came out in that interview with Harold is the scale and the impact of globalization. Yes, there have been hugely ungoverned spaces, not only in Mexico and in the Brazilian Amazon and in large parts of Central Asia and the Middle East, but they didn't produce products or have implications that made millions of people addicted and then out of work in Northern Hemisphere states. So a policy that the Libyan or Mexican government has to not try to govern a place and let the militia control it that that causes billions of dollars of corrupt money and people who are unemployed or homeless in the streets, not only in the U.S., but elsewhere. That's what we're, we have to grapple yes. with. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm going to bring us back to pick up this theme of Mexico in the U.S. because it's such an interesting case study. And to dig a little deeper into why and how it's been so difficult for Mexico and the U.S. to work together, I spoke with Sam Quinones who's the author of a book called The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. This is actually his second book on the subject, which does offer a little bit of hope on uh, overcoming the fentanyl problem. 
So I began by asking him, why is this particular drug problem so much worse than previous ones? The drugs on the street now are synthetics, which means that they can be made with chemicals, no plants involved, no seasons, just amazing quantities of the stuff coming north, uh, uh, killing people in remarkable numbers, addicting many, many, many more people who survived their first dose. And now what you're finding across the country is that fentanyl is put into all kinds of other drugs, cocaine, methamphetamine, etc. So it's being spread into almost everything. It's very difficult to trust any drug on the street. And with methamphetamine, of course, you are finding meth coming in in potencies that we have never seen. Likely no human brain has ever ingested. Methamphetamine is potent as we're seeing now on the streets in the United States. And all of this really just has to do with enormous amounts of supply that the Mexican trafficking world is able to make down in Mexico and then smuggle across the 2,000 mile border that we share with that country. I think I read somewhere that fentanyl is 50 times the potency of heroin and 100 times the potency of morphine. So you can just get addicted immediately. If you don't die on first exposures, you very quickly are getting addicted. We're seeing that all across the country now. It's no longer that people are unaware of what they're taking. That was the case for a good long time. But now so many people who have survived that first exposure or exposures now are fully addicted. And the, there's a huge difference between addiction to heroin, which is an opioid, and addiction to fentanyl, which is another opioid. And that is that the tolerances of fentanyl are towering. It's so hard. The, the withdrawals are so much more difficult to manage. And so what it means is that you just need more and more of this drug every day than you ever needed of heroin, people are reporting using fentanyl four, five, six, seven times a day. Oh Most heroin gosh. users never needed to use more than two or three times a day. I mean, as a parent, I find it absolutely terrifying. Is Mexico the main supplier of this? And where do the ingredients for this drug come from? It's being made in Mexico with ingredients from the world chemical markets, principally China is what the DEA is reporting. All this stuff is coming in in container loads of, of ingredients into Mexico, and then they're making and sending it north. Fentanyl is very easy to make, particularly with one chemical, 4-ANPP. You can turn that chemical into fentanyl pretty easily. There are other chemicals that you can then turn into 4-ANPP. It's not a difficult procedure. It's a little bit more difficult, perhaps, with methamphetamine, but you can make methamphetamine. They have discovered a variety of ways with different kinds of chemicals. And that's really what has fueled the enormous expansion of this drug in the last eight years or so. Now they can make quantities of the stuff. And again, more potent than ever. So now what we're seeing is something completely unprecedented in our country. And that is two drugs made by the same general source have now covered the country. So you have methamphetamine in New England, which never had any methamphetamine of any kind. Fentanyl, you see it everywhere. It's just a function of the enormous supplies that are being produced daily with no seasons, with synthetic drugs. There's no season. You don't care about land or sunlight or irrigation. All you care about is getting access to ports through which you can get your ingredients, and they have control of those ports. Can you give us an idea of the scale of the problem? I mean, what kind of numbers are we talking about in terms of addiction and death 
Is it the leading cause of death in some communities or in some age groups? It's an unprecedented scale. We lost, I believe, in the entire Vietnam War, 58,000 people during the 15 years or so that the United States was involved in the war in Vietnam. We lose almost double that every year now to overdose. And the last figures we have, which are for 2021, which is almost 106,000 people died in 2021, 70% of that was connected to fentanyl. But the remarkable thing, too, is that it just seems to be everywhere. That's the thing. I do speeches all over this country, and everywhere I go, everywhere I go, the story is exactly the same. So we don't have any regional differences anymore in drug use, when we, which we used to have during plant-based drugs. Now it's just fentanyl and meth or meth and fentanyl, and that kind of depends on wherever it is you are in the country. But the stories don't don't change. It's all kind of a homogenization of our drug offering or drug supply, very similar to what you find if you take the interstates nationwide. You find the same burger joints, the same hotels, the same gas stations. The drug trafficking world has done what corporate America has done, and it's kind of like homogenizing the offering nationwide. Harold Trinkinus, who we were interviewing earlier for this episode, was talking about the rise of ungoverned spaces, areas where non-state actors have moved in and displaced the authority of the government at the local or the state or the national level. How has the opioid epidemic and the fentanyl epidemic affected governance in these communities? Do we have ungoverned spaces now in the U.S.? I would say that there seems to be some, sure. And we've done that to ourselves, it seems to me. We have stepped back from the idea that people selling a highly deadly drug like fentanyl should be arrested in some areas. Now, that's not the case all across the country, of course, but in some areas, that's absolutely what's going on. I would say Skid Row in parts of LA looks to me like an ungoverned space. Tenderloin area of San Francisco, without a doubt, also certain parts of South Market, seem to me to be ungoverned spaces entirely. There's simply no attempt to stop people from selling a drug that is very much like firing a gun into a crowd. You know you're going to hurt somebody and you most likely kill somebody by selling that stuff. As we step back from arresting people, believing that, I think erroneously, that we should not apply what is widely assumed to be kind of the tools of the quote-unquote drug war to this problem, that we are somehow benefiting anybody You were not benefiting any of the people involved, except for maybe, of course, the traffickers and the dealers. But I think by and large, doesn't help any addict, certainly doesn't help the community, doesn't help the businesses, the schools, et cetera, nearby. And just the general tenor of the place feels like there is no authority in charge. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. We've talked a lot, and it's your area of particular expertise, on the dimensions of the problem in the U.S. and the massive flow across the border from Mexico. I don't think in the U.K. or the EU there is quite the same awareness of this problem. Do we have a fentanyl and an opioid crisis in Europe and the UK? Is it coming down the road towards us? Or is the particular geography of Mexico and the U.S., meaning that it seems to be a particular phenomenon stateside? I would say that one thing you don't have in the rest of the world is the 
enormous population of opioid addicted consumers that we created during an earlier stage of this problem, which was our widespread prescribing by doctors promoted by drug companies of narcotic painkillers nationwide for almost any malady or any issue that you want to name. It was remarkable how that took place. I would say, though, that now that fentanyl is on the scene, it would surprise me that if any drug trafficker anywhere would actually grow poppies to make heroin. Heroin just seems like an enormously arduous task when you can make fentanyl in about a few days in your backyard with the right chemicals, of course. I just think that more and more places may well see fentanyl, but no place in the world, we were unique in the world in creating this enormous population of opioid-addicted consumers coast to coast in our country, beginning in the mid-90s and running, well, still going on today, but certainly through the 2012, 15, what have you. And so there is that. We are unique in that sense. Okay, so for our European listeners... The phenomenon in the US was these huge pharmaceutical companies encouraging doctors to prescribe highly addictive medicines. And there was a family, the Sackler family, that was making millions out of this. And were they closely connected to politicians and so encouraging Congress to turn a little bit of a blind eye to this? I did not see that they had such great connection, political connections. I think that they were, okay. that, by the way, they were making billions, billions. with a B of dollars on, the, on this from one drug, which was about the only drug they made, which is called OxyContin. It contains oxycodone, opioid, uh, opioid painkiller. Yeah. And my feeling was that they were at a moment in time in which Americans were demanding an end to pain somehow. And they come along and they do have some political support, but I think they're a small company generally. What they do put in place is a whole series of techniques for marketing drugs that are revolutionary and part of the marketing held that when you are a pain patient, you cannot be addicted to an opioid, which is patently not true. Depends entirely on the patient and individual cases. But it, it was an example, again, of how supply creates demand. And I believe that is the overriding point to what we're seeing now in the drug world, certainly in the United States. The first place where you saw that happen was with the opioids prescribing by doctors, all of a sudden people all across this country began getting addicted. And when that began to happen, that changed the whole business. But we are still living with the consequences and fentanyl is just the latest stage in that problem. So let's talk a little bit about how governments have reacted to this rising new challenge of these highly addictive new products. Why is this particular phenomenon proving so difficult to tackle? Well, my feeling is that there's very little being done that's effective because it now gets to issues related to the two countries, Mexico and the United States. And uh, the long history of mitigated or slightly truncated collaboration and cooperation. We've never been able to collaborate and cooperate in the ways that I think are possible. And on the contrary, each country points to the other and says, you're to blame. And each country is to blame, but we need to understand how to move forward beyond that. Is there a bit of the sort of history of Mexican prickliness towards its big neighbor? Or does the US sort of act in a somewhat 
overbearing manner or is there history playing into this? Sure. I lived in Mexico for 10 years and it's very clear that people don't trust any collaboration with the United States and that's something we have to work to overcome. On the other side, the United States, particularly people in law enforcement, don't know who to trust in the Mexican government, who to share information with. They have lots of information that would be extraordinarily helpful in attacking certain trafficking groups, but you don't know if you share it with someone or somebody that they won't just turn around and share it with those very same traffickers, that kind of thing. It's a very dicey problem. On the other hand, we have fashioned two, in fact, free trade agreements between the two countries that seem to be working more or less well, at least without the kind of the antagonism that we see on this issue. And I'm not sure why this has not exactly been more possible. I will say that there's lots of people in the, in the U.S. government who believe that basically, certainly the current president of Mexico, Andres Manuel López Obrador, is in the pocket of either elements of the military or groups with, that would rather not be part of a, a solution. That's a very difficult diplomatic issue when you're not sure if you can trust the partners who you need to work with on the other side. And that plays into sure. this issue of ungoverned spaces. To what extent Mexican authorities going as high as high-ranking people in the government are colluding or turning a blind eye or taking a cut from this trade. That's very difficult diplomatically to handle. Uh, yes, I would say that that's absolutely true, that you have, and you have a long history of that. The cartel system in Mexico was essentially created largely by, or certainly with the help of elements of the Mexican government in the 80s. That's when you turned a bunch of ragtag marijuana growers up in the hills into various groups of more organized and sophisticated traffickers. And that began with the Directorio Federal de Seguridad, the DFS, famous element of the Mexican government in the 1980s. There's a long history. There was some argument to be made that one of the world's greatest drug traffickers for a while was the Mexican government. There's always been this feeling in the United States that we're in a boat that's sinking with an, a partner who keeps on drilling holes in the boat. You've got massive supply uncertain who your partners are. But the US and Mexico, in theory, their interests should align on this. I'm going to come to ordering the disorder. What do we need to be doing to try and get a grip on this? I would say that this is a supply problem, and therefore we need to address supply. As it happens, I think it's far easier now to address this problem because there's only a few points in Mexico where these ingredients are coming into Mexico, and that is Mexico City Airport and other shipping ports. So we now have places where we can devote resources. It seems to me that we have this exaggerated idea of what we're trying to create. If people are being arrested in Mexico, couples are being arrested in Mexico, and then someone else takes their place, yeah, so what? So what? That happens in, in the United States all the time. We just have a very, very robust, very well-trained uh, law enforcement alliance among all law enforcement groups that does a magnificent job of arresting people before they get to Chapo Guzman's stature. 
and you see this all the time. Does that mean that people will stop selling drugs? That people will stop trying to be the next couple? No. That is what the rule of law is about. We don't stop trying to arrest murderers just because people keep murdering each other or burglarizing houses. We don't stop that. We keep on. That is what the rule of law is about, that we're going to enforce these laws that we have on the book. The worst thing you can do is have laws on the books that no one enforces. I lived through this in Mexico. There's classic examples of this all across Mexico. That is how you create order from disorder. My view very strongly is you insist on the rule of law and enforcing the rule of law. And if some other guy grows up in the place of the guy that you sent to prison for life, well, you go after him. We have this idea that somehow human nature will, will somehow stop being what it always has been in other areas of criminality. To the extent that you stop doing this in one area, you leave yourself open to disorder. So is the solution, in your view, just ramping up resources and really prioritizing this, that we have the tools, the laws exist, we just really need to enforce them, and it may mean just ramping up the resources to do it effectively? Is that the answer? There is no one answer. That's part of the answer. We absolutely need law enforcement to play the role it always has played, but that cannot be the only thing that we do. It does involve like understanding that, that addiction and some of these issues go beyond simple arrest, but it gets to other ideas like finding ways of accepting people who are addicts and recovery back into the community, finding ways of getting them work, finding ways of getting them housing, this kind of thing. We need to have it be a community solution. How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community again. And I can tell you in the United States, we have shredded, shredded that feeling of community that I think existed for a long time. And there's certain barometers of it that were very clear that that was in fact the case. In my travels and my reporting, I have seen communities do this. This is happening across the country in small ways. The problem is it's not sexy. It's not magic answer or anything like that. It's simply people working in the small ways in finding a solution to this one block or this one downtown or what have you. This is happening. And I think that is where we would be well advised to really put a lot of focus and, and efforts. There is no one big answer. There's no magic answer to this. It's all small stuff. Both of our guests have given us a lot to chew on. They've highlighted the true extent to which areas of Mexico and even America are truly ungoverned and how with millions of Americans addicted to the most damaging form of opioids, it's gonna be very difficult to put the cat in the bag. Against that chilling backdrop, how do we fight the epidemic? I know, we try to order the disorder. Well, what I took from this, and I know that you and I come at this from slightly different approaches, I thought Sam and Harold both really had the idea that you need to strengthen communities from the ground up, that you can't rely just upon a top-down approach. Governments have a role to play, and I know that's what you feel very strongly, that we're missing this strong leadership. And of course, I'm not going to argue with that. I thought Sam made a great point about 
you just have to keep going. You keep going. You keep going. You don't just say, well, there are so many murders happening. I'm just not going to bother. Or if we catch one criminal, another one occurs. And that actually was quite interesting for me because certainly when I was posted to Colombia, we did sometimes wonder, what are we doing here? We capture one cartel head and they splinter into five cartels and it's like fighting the Hydra. I can see two solutions here. I just think that the middle ground is where it fails. Let's talk about the really right-wing libertarian solution and the classically left status solution before judging them. If there was no illegality to any drug on earth, you would not have drug cartels. And I'm not saying I support this because I think that heroin and fentanyl are too addictive that we do actually need to regulate them. But if you could go to your local convenience store and get black tar heroin for what it costs to produce it with a small markup, it would cost six or seven cents and there would be no killings and smuggling and no ungoverned space issue as a result. So I can see a libertarian approach there. Again, I don't think that's my solution. My inclination is coherent, coordinated state top-down regulation. If we see a given area in the Tenderloin in San Francisco or Compton where there's this drug trafficking going on, why can't the Montes just go in there and clean it out. I don't grasp why we tend to be so much worse at these kinds of law enforcement than regular continental European countries. What are your views there, Alex? I always think of myself as fairly liberal and tending on the left. But I do also think that communities and people need to take some personal responsibility and government is not always the solution. I mean, in terms of crime and law and order and the infrastructure of the state, of course I believe in effective government, but I also believe you do need communities. I mean, the crack cocaine epidemic, in the end, it wasn't law enforcement that stamped it out. It was the communities themselves that were devastated by crack cocaine, finally weaning themselves off some of the addiction. But I'm going to end this episode by returning back to my boy's teenage bedroom. Love it. Because, <laughs> because I think I have to work a little bit in partnership with them. I have to apply a little bit of authoritarian stick from above. Pocket money, phones, internet, and something in it for them as well. So... Working with them is the solution. It's a top-down and a community approach as well. But I think you also need to inspire trust. And this is the legitimacy element. They need to see you as not only a magnanimous mother, but someone with the degree of far-sighted vision where you paint a picture of them getting into their Ivy League colleges and their girlfriends saying, wow, that's a really clean t-shirt that you have on. And I love how well you get on with your parents. I find that very attractive. And this gets at the sense of vision because we can't have leadership and create bipartisan or transnational compromises if we're not painting a picture of the future that people can believe in. That is what connects this issue to the enduring disorder and like the larger themes of our our other episodes. And I'm, I'm optimistic in the long term on the drug issue because 
it's so solvable, and, and I think that people are getting their heads around it. Well, that's it for this week. Hopefully leaving the world a little bit more orderly than it was before. We can but hope. If you want to support our show, there are many ways to do just that. First of all, you can follow Disorder now wherever you're listening. Then every episode will arrive in your feed automatically. Secondly, please follow us on social media. We're at Disorder Show. And finally, for more on today's topics, please follow the links in our show notes. First thanks go to our producer, George McDonough. Then our executive producer at Goalhanger, Neil Fern. My former program manager, Zena Starbuck. And Guy Fiends. To all who've participated, you too have helped order the disorder. And in next week's show, the dash for net zero is an important one because if if a major industrial country actually sets itself a stretch target of getting there a bit earlier and then actually does it by actually innovating, that is going to be very powerful. We'll discuss one of the biggest examples of our disordered world, the climate crisis. When working together on a solution is desperately needed time and time again, the world powers squabble and come up short. But before then, wishing you an orderly week. Goodbye.